Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone out here with us today. If you're, if you're new with us today, we are, we are going into a speech by Paul. We had the first half last week, the second half this week, and he's been laying out, really, what are, what are the qualifications of a faithful minister? What's the qualifications for a faithful elder in the church of the living God? So we're picking up with the second half of that today. And, and as we do, As we turn back to it, it's really impossible to miss the timeliness and the necessity of Paul's instructions to the elders here in Ephesus. Celebrity pastors are crashing to the ground with frightening regularity. Whether it be the ultimate product of their abusive arrogance, their un, the unexpected revelation of their sexual sin, or their public rejection of the gospel that they once proclaimed. And and if you think I'm overstating the case, I'm not. A 2012 book that was written specifically to highlight the dangers of pastoral ministry received raving reviews, and on the back cover, three of the reviewers are no longer qualified for ministry today. Three people that said, you need to read this book, are no longer qualified to lead today. But this trend among celebrity pastors, it's honestly, it's only the tip of the iceberg, right? They're just the ones that we see because they're the ones that are well known. Pastors all over are falling to the same kinds of problems. We can add on to this. Pastoral ministry is hard. A 2021 study by the Barner Research Group found that 38% of pastors in America, that is two out of every five pastors, have thought about leaving full-time ministry for good. Sell insurance, do something, anything but the ministry. And the scary thing about these numbers is that 46% of the pastors in this study that said this were under the age of 45 years old. That's pretty threatening to the church when you think that 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 large of a group of the younger pastors in our churches in America are ready to walk away. That threatens the long-term just stability of the church. I mean, it'd be devastating to see something like that happen. So, so we look at the big picture. We look all the way from, from the big guys that we see on television, we hear on the radio, we see on the internet, to the no-name guy in the church in the middle of Nowheresville, America. What's the solution? How, how in the world can we hope to turn the tide? And we've got to admit, there's no silver bullet, there's no quick fix to the problem, but I'm convinced that at least one answer to the question, at least one answer, is that the church at large needs to abandon its obsession with dynamic, results-orientated leadership and return to the standard of faithfulness that God has revealed in his holy word. We've been given a standard. We've been given something to follow. And the best step is first to begin there. And that's not because dynamic leadership is sinful. And it's not because we don't want results. We do. 
But it's because an unhealthy pursuit of these external markers can quickly erode a church's commitment to biblically faithful leadership. They just start overlooking things they should never overlook if results are the only thing that matters. See, the truth of the matter is that faithful ministers and faithful ministries do not fall overnight. It looks like it because we see the news. But they don't fall overnight. No, no. Faithful ministers and faithful ministries fall one compromise at a time from the inside out. One compromise at a time as they slowly rot from the inside out. It's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like bleeding out by, the, by, by, by like a million paper cuts. That's how it happens. Because they've ignored the biblical truth that faithful ministers... The first thing that we see in the text today, faithful ministers are called to watch out over themselves as they watch over God's flock. They're called to watch over themselves as they watch over God's flock. So let's go to verse 28 in Acts chapter 20, the second half of Paul's speech, and this is where he starts turning to them to give them instruction. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and while the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And, and from among, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. See, see the first thing we need to see in this verse is, is, it, is it everything revolves around one single command? The command is pay attention. Pay attention. Be concerned about, care for, be watchful of. What are they supposed to be pay careful attention to? Two things. Two things, not one, two. They're supposed to pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock. In fact, the word order in this command helps us see that, a, that a, an elder's spiritual vitality is just as important as his spiritual service. Spiritual vitality of the minister is essential for his spiritual service. We can't overlook it. We can't exchange it for something else. I mean, I mean, just think about it. If an elder does not nurture and guard and pay attention to their own spiritual and theological life, they're not, they're not paying attention to their ethical integrity. I mean, I mean, how in the world are they going to be able to lead and minister and serve their church? How's it going to happen? I mean, the simple answer is they're not going to do it faithfully. They might be able to schmooze people with their giftedness and their charisma. They, they might be able to camouflage their spiritual anemia with their theological acumen and their organizational prowess. But over the time, the cracks in their character are going to blow out into gaping wounds, and that's what we see on the television. We see something that was already there, and it's finally blown out. But why? Why? It's because they're trying to accomplish the purposes of God in the power of their own flesh. And it can look a million different ways. 
It looks a million different ways. Let me just highlight just a few. For some, maybe it fits our local context in the Pacific Northwest. Some will try to manipulate everything around them through their angry outbursts, through their preferential treatment and their abusive ostracism. Others. Others will actually fall into deep bouts of depression in the middle of everything, in holding it together, in in having visionary and charismatic leadership, but an empty spiritual life will fall into deep bouts of private depression. And they're going to turn to every manner of spiritual diversion. Entertainment, gluttony, alcohol, pornography, sexual sin, all of that to cope with the incongruency between their personal lifestyle and their public persona. Some will start to compromise scriptures themselves and attempt to redefine the purpose of the church. To anesthetize their conscience and to cover over their spiritual emptiness and to try to find a new purpose without having to change jobs. They start taking the church in a completely different place. See, See, in all this, I want you to see. Elders... And pastors are not a special group of Christians who've made it and are no longer susceptible to sin. They're not a special class like that. That class don't exist. No, the history of the church is full of elders who started well, but who forfeit their office and deeply wounded their churches because they were no longer ministering out of the overflow of their personal relationship with God. To put it another way, elders are called to be shepherds of the flock, but they're still sheep. There's never a time when a pastor or elder is not simply what every other Christian in his church, even the newest Christian who came to faith in Jesus Christ last week, he's still a sheep. He's not under class. And as such, they desperately need the very same things that their flock requires. I mean, it's like when we, when we go over to the qualifications for eldership in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul lays them out. What, what does he highlight? As we read the entire list, beginning in chapter, one, in chapter 3, verse 1, his, his focus in that entire list is on character. There's only one area of competency in the list, and that is the ability to teach. Everything else is character. Anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That was the one. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Oh, how about this? Lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. They don't know how to manage their house. How can they manage the church? Can't not be a recent convert so he doesn't become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Be well thought of by outsiders so he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. See, see, eldership is, it is a holy calling. It is. And it comes with a clear set of requirements. 
But, but at the same time, the list helps to see that, 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 that eldership is not reserved for an elite few. Just, just look at that list. It is not reserved for an elite few. I mean, as one of the greatest theologians of, of our time has said, the most extraordinary thing about the biblical prerequisites for elders in this text is that they are not that all extraordinary. I mean, I mean, it would be another sermon, but we can actually go through the entirety of the New Testament and we can see these same requirements laid out for average everyday Christians. It's the same requirements. I mean, I mean, the, the whole point is they just need to be mature people. We're just looking for mature Christians. See, qualified elders are not required to have the visionary genius of Steve Jobs, the doctrinal precision of John MacArthur, and the counseling insights of the Holy Spirit himself. That's not the requirements of eldership. No, the fundamental requirement is faithful maturity. As Reverend Murray McShaney observed over a hundred years ago, it's not great talents God blesses so much as a great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. So we need to see first and foremost about ministry, qualifications, and the marks of a faithful minister. So as we turn back to verse 28, what, what is the first duty? This, or should I say, what is this duty? Why is it so important? Watch over yourself and watch over the flock. Why is it so, why is it so important? It's because they can't fulfill their second duty apart from upholding the first. They, 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 can't, they can't do it. The second duty being this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. See, as we turn to this, this second duty, one thing I want to highlight here is there's, there's, there's actually a comprehensive adjective that we don't want to miss. It's the word all. All. That this single word helps us see that the responsibilities of an elder are, 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 are more than the average congregant, more than the average church member. Average church member can, can kind of be, you know, kind of interact with a close, closer group of friends and try to, you know, reach out like we always encourage, and you guys are doing a great job of lately. But an elder has a broader requirement to look, to look out for the entire congregation, to embrace all the congregation. And in the context of the first century, the, the, the complication was that, that these churches, here in Ephesus especially, they're made up of Jews and Gentiles alike. They're made up of people who did not normally get together and get along and, and have cookouts together. And, and now the elders are, are having to work with a church of this diverse group of people. And he's saying, you can't just focus on the ones that are more like you, whether you're an you're a elder that's a Jew or a Gentile. And in the context of the 21st century, this means that elders are called to watch over and minister to the, the ethnically and politically diverse group of people that comprise our churches. There's a great diversity in our churches, ethnically 
And there's a degree of political diversity in the church, which means it is not an easy task. It's a hard thing. I mean, to return to our Barna survey, why were 38% of the pastors in 2021 thinking about leaving the ministry for good? In many cases, it was the diversity and outright disagreement that permeated their churches during the pandemic. It was a super hard time. We know it was. It was hard. And when we think about this all here, what I want you to see is, is that the all, we could kind of use it as a stick to beat everybody and be like, oh, oh, there's one or two we're missing. But it's like the all is also highlighting the difficulty of the task. It's a difficulty. I mean, Paul knows that even the most faithful and compassionate elder can be tempted to avoid the all of the flock. We can be tempted to. Which is why he goes on to give them two reasons to, to uphold their obligations to the all. So, so it's like, like, it's all, it's big, it's difficult, so let me give you some reasons to spur you on. Number one. Number one is their calling to begin with as elders. Why are these men elders in the first place? Is it because they were buddies with Paul? Is it because that they were, they were the most important people in Ephesus? Was it because they had a better education than everyone else? And that's not the answer. No, it's because it was because these men were elders because God himself had called them and equipped them to be elders. The Holy Spirit, he says in the end of verse 28, he's made you elders. He's made you. Now, did the congregation see them and appoint them into ministry? Yes. But he's saying there's something more than the congregation recognizing your qualifications. There's God's work. And what it helps us see is is that he's saying, elders, you're, you're, you're responsible to God for your service. Look over the all. God has put you to look over the all. And, and because God has put you there in the first place, and it is the work of God to place you into that position of leadership, you are actually the same thing that I am, speaking of Paul. You're servants of Christ. Remember what he said last week? You remember my life, I lived among you the whole time I was there. How did he live? He lived as a servant of Jesus Christ. He's saying, he's saying we're the same thing. We're the same thing. We're both servants. But the second thing here is that Paul doesn't stop at their calling. He, he, he turns from their, their calling as elders and God's calling them into his service to the second motivation and that is actually the infinite value of their congregation. The, the infinite value of their congregation. Notice, why do the all in verse 28 matter so much to God? It's because God purchased every single one of his people with his blood. That it helps change our mindset when we think about people in our church. If they're truly a Christian, they are infinitely valuable to God no matter what stage of their Christian life they're at. And this has to be one of the most important motivations for faithful eldership in the entire Bible. 
because it actually reminds us that the most frustrating, problematic church member we have ever known is infinitely valuable to our Savior. Brings perspective. And as such, they rightly deserve our care along with every other member of the church. But it begs the question, why? Why is Paul so adamant about this calling to pay attention selves to both them and the flock? It's because these elders need to know they need to know that the infinitely valuable people of God do not exist in a state of comfortable neutrality. The church doesn't exist in this comfortable state of neutrality. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. We know he's heading off to Jerusalem. We know he's not planning on coming back. He told us that last week. If you're familiar with the scope of Acts, you know he's on his way to Rome. Kind of a long journey, but he gets there eventually. They're going to come in not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So here in the second mark of faithful eldership we see that faithful ministers recognize the dangers that threaten their congregation. And it's really important to point out here like like the things that he's worried about and he's warning them about is not state-sponsored persecution and it's not religious attacks from the idol worshipers in Ephesus like we saw a couple weeks ago when, when we had the silversmiths that were making shrines of Artemis turning the town upside down. He's not warning about, the, about political issues or physical oppression from the people around them. No, he's, he's worried about a danger that's going to arise inside the church. Two different ways. Inside the church. In fact, throughout the history of the church, when we think about external threats, like be it government persecution or, or the kind of threats that Paul's talking about here, this is always the threat that damages the church the most. Governmental persecution and regulation never, never destroys a church like internal corruption. What's he worried about? He's worried about savage wolves, that is, unbelieving false teachers, slipping into the church in the singular hope that they can destroy and undermine and undercut the church. The other avenue, he's worried about individuals in the church, professing Christians, who would step into the power, power vacuum when he left and would attempt to gain personal following by, by twisting the truth, somehow making it all about them. And we know what happened. Like, like it didn't take 50 years for this to happen. All we got to do is turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. He's opening up this book to his young protege, Timothy, who's traveled all over the ancient world with him. And he's left Timothy in Ephesus. He sent him back to straighten out a mess. 
verse 1, as I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you might charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Notice, this is not some little straighten out some small problems. I mean, he's confronting problems. Charge them not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The the aim, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. I think Paul's fired up. You think you think Paul cares about what gets proclaimed in the church of the living God and what gets taught in in Bible studies and small groups? Yeah. He does. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, chances are you've probably been to a Bible study or a small group that was wandering into plenty of vain discussion. Timothy is in Ephesus because the elders that Paul is addressing in our text didn't uphold their duty. They didn't uphold their duty to watch out for themselves and the flock of God. And as we look at the text in Acts and we look at 1 Timothy, it's very possible that some of these elders were maybe even part of the problem. See, on the one hand, there's Paul's warning. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Verse 30. Among your own selves. Now we, we can read that as in among yourselves as in the church or among yourselves as in the elders that he's talking to. Many scholars point to the fact that he's probably highlighting the men he's talking to. And on the other hand, there's Paul's observation that these men will be driven by a primary motive. And that's to grow an ever-increasing audience to themselves of people who think they're awesome teachers. which kind of also fits in the category of men who are serving in these teaching and leadership positions. They want to be known as something more than they are. They carry more about a following than being faithful. And what we see in the text is that these men are not simply misguided people with good intentions. And that happens in the church, okay? Now, not everybody who comes off with something that's off base is really trying to cause a problem. Sometimes they're just off base. No, these people, possibly these elders, what have they done? They've abandoned the clear truths of God's word, the doctrines that are clearly laid out, and they've they've exchanged it for myths and speculations and, and vain discussions. And if we kind of think of the metaphor of Paul talking about the church being a flock, Instead of feeding the, 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 pure, the pure word of God, which is able to help them grow and mature, they're feeding them a mix of like toxic weeds and junk food. And when we see this, we see this kind of thing happen in the church, whether we're elders or not. 
When you see this kind of teaching, vain discussions, empty speculations going on in the church, we should always be able to recognize the error. The more and more speculation you hear, the more reason there is to walk away. Because the pure handling of God's word always aims at one great goal. There's one goal that we have, and that is to magnify the glory and the worth and the preeminence of Jesus Christ above everything else. That's the goal of our teaching. It's not to make ourselves look awesome. It's so that our people can see Jesus and be captivated by his worth. That those who don't know Jesus will see Jesus and be captivated by his worth. See, these verses help us see that arrogant and ambitious people will always be tempted to twist and corrupt the word of God to serve their own self-interest and to make themselves the center of attention. And they help us see that it is possible for once faithful elders to fall into this pattern of prideful, self-aggrandizing sin. Watch out for yourselves. Watch out for yourselves. And watch over the flock. In fact, with this in mind, let's circle back to the elders' duty to pay careful attention to themselves and the flock. Why, why is it so important that an elder does both? That a pastor does both? It's because it's possible for elders to become the very threat that they were appointed to stop in the first place. possible for elders to become the very threat that they were appointed to stop in the first place. That's why it's important. Now, now at this stage, I'm certain that at least one or two of you might be thinking, well, <laughs> Mark, the kind of standards that we see this week and we saw last week, I mean, it makes it scary even to ever think about being an elder. I mean, last week I closed with a call encouraging and asking, is God calling some of our men to membership because I know that we need it. We only have a few. We have at least one stepping off the board this year because of how long they've served. They need to take a one-year break. We need, we need elders. There's no question. And you might think, like, this is like the worst advertisement we could ever have to encourage people to be elders. Well, the truth of the matter is, the, the call to eldership, it, it, it is humanly impossible. Humanly. It's impossible. But that doesn't mean it's impossible because God always provides what he requires. And that's actually where Paul goes. Verse 32. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
brings us to the third mark of faithful ministry. In this text, what do we see? We see that faithful ministers are emboldened by the promise that God always provides what he requires. That, that's Paul's point. God's going to provide what you need. He's going to provide it. I mean, I mean, I mean, Paul doesn't just, just give these guys a speech on his way to Jerusalem and slap them on the back like, like a football coach and say, go get them, boys knowing that he's sending them against like the top-ranked team in the state, right? Knowing they're going to be slaughtered. No, no, he says, it is very possible for you to do everything that I've called you to do because God is the one who's going to make it possible. I mean, he's actually, he's, he's, he's anticipating their inevitable sense of doubt and worry and fear that they're going to be on their own and they can't turn to Paul when they need him. Oh, and, and I, can, I can tell you, there's, in an elder's life, there's, there's all sorts of room for, for doubt and worry and fear. Maybe not room. Maybe I'm just saying that's what I have experienced. I should say that. Yeah, we have that. But it calls us to turn away from ourselves and our self-reliance because every time we look and see our ineptness, our lack of wisdom, it calls us to turn to the one who's able to do all things. Right? What does James 1 tell us when you lack wisdom? Turn on Oprah? No, no. No, no, pray, right? Tells us where to go. See, and in here, what's he doing? He's pointing them to their one true source of strength and power and authority. That is the very power of God and the word of God. We, we have two things. The power of God at work within us through his Holy Spirit, and we have his revealed word. He gives us what we need for the task. So we don't have to rely on our own wisdom. We don't have to rely on the leadership models that this world has given us. And there's good in those models but only to the degree that they align with God's word. So you see, the secret to faithful eldership, the secret to faithful eldership is living by the promise that God graciously provides what he requires. What it doesn't mean when it comes to faithful eldership, it, it, it means that what we're not doing, we're not relying on our business acumen, our leadership training, our tenacious drive, or our type A personalities. No. No, it's possible because the one who saved us is the one who promises to forever empower our every step of obedience and guide us by his inerrant word. And we get to this point in Paul's speech and it's like the perfect time to stop. You know, you've probably been there in any one of my sermons, Mark, this is a perfect time to stop. But he gets reminded. He's like, oh, wait a minute, there's one more thing. And it's important. It could have gone somewhere else, but he has it at the end. And so he goes like, one more thing. 
I mean, it just would have been so good to just leave it in God's hands, close in prayer, go to the ship. One more thing. Verse 33. He warns them because he, knew, he wants them to see that faithful ministers don't use their position as a path to personal gain. Verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. I'm just going to make a couple quick observations here. Number one, I think it's pretty clear, but I want to make it clear. Paul's not implying that every minister needs to pursue a trade while they minister in the church. He's not saying every minister must be bivocational. Some of us have been. I, I, I was bivocational for nine years, my first nine years in ministry. I mean, warehouseman in a lumberyard, commercial fisherman, plumber. Like, like, like I've done it. <laughs> but that's, I mean, he's not saying that's what we're required to do. Because he himself teaches in 1 Timothy that elders actually should receive salaries from their church. 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor deserves his wages. So, so he's saying, hey, those who are getting, putting all that time into the teaching and preaching ministries in the church, the church needs to be supporting them. So, so if Paul's not against salaries, what, what, what's he against? He, he's against this. He's against elders using their position of influence and service among the people of God as a path to personal gain. That's what he's against. And, and, and that, that's because this pursuit of financial gain in a pastor or elder's life, will taint every aspect of his ministry. It's going to taint everything. It's going to taint his priorities and his personal interactions and actually what he says across the pulpit. If you're really trying to pad the bottom line, you are not going to preach certain texts in God's word. There's some passages you're going to be like, you know, some people disagree about that. We're going to go on. I mean, Jesus himself says you cannot serve both God and money, right? He's saying you can't be, you can't be that guy. And it's interesting. The solution is not to sell everything and live in a state of perpetual poverty, but not to be ruled by the sin. It's better to give than receive. It's better to freely help others as you are able instead of selfishly guarding your resources and focusing on amassing wealth. That's what he's saying. So these are the marks of a faithful minister. And and as we conclude this morning, I'd actually like to conclude with, with a story it's real. Um, but I think it can protect us from two common tendencies that can follow a sermon, actually two sermons, on faithful leadership. There can be a couple tendencies when we, when we walk away from passages like this. 
Number one, we can be tempted to weaponize these marks that we've just, we've just worked through. We can weaponize them. And we can kind of use them to beat our elders. I mean, we can. I mean, we want perfect. It's like, it's like you're doing okay, but not good enough. We can use them to beat him. And I think the other thing that we can also do is we can kind of like enshrine these, the, these marks of faithful eldership. We can put them out there and be tempted to believe, as we've already stated, nobody can ever do this. Obviously, God does not want me to ever contemplate serving as an elder in the church. No way that's ever going to happen. So let me share a story from a real-life experience written down by Paul Tripp, well-known author, speaker, pastor, and he writes it in a book that was titled Lead, written specifically to pastors and elders. And it begins like this. He says, I was a failure. Good opening line. I was a failure. I was running. I couldn't imagine a life of pastoral leadership anymore. It had once been my passion, a dream that seemed too good to be true, but the passion had morphed into a burden that I no longer wanted to bear. I had found a safe landing place, and I could not wait to put the ministry behind me. I'd made my announcement, my heart was closed to the present, and it was only open to what was ahead. I'd had all the tough conversations I thought I needed to have. I was done, and I did not want to have one more quasi-judgmental, awkward encounter. When he approached me, I hoped it would be a quick Hello, we're praying for you. But it was so much more. He said, Paul, we know you're immature, but we haven't asked you to leave. Catch that? We know you're immature, but we haven't asked you to leave. Then he said to me, where's the church going to get mature leaders if immature leaders run away. Where are we going to get them? Don't go. He says, I was frozen for a moment at the power of his words. They were gospel words, and I knew it. They were packed with years of patient wisdom. I think his words were even wiser than he knew. I instantly knew that I couldn't and wouldn't run. I unresigned, if there's ever such a thing. And and I stayed for many more years. See, in the end, I was a leader, but I needed to be led. I was the pastor, but I needed to be pastored. I was the primary gospel spokesman, but I needed to have the gospel preached to me. And when it came, it came powerfully. And it came effectively in a swift wind of the Spirit that I could not push against. 
It came as wise words of my father, which I knew I should not resist. It came as a gentle welcome of my savior to run to him and not away from him in all of my fear and all of my failure. I shared this at the end because it is an important reminder that every elder is on a path of growing maturity in Christ, just like every Christian. And at the end of the day, even the most faithful elders are sheep that need to be shepherded. And sometimes that shepherding comes from the very people that are in their congregation. Let's close in a word of prayer.